Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In the 1970s, uh, there was a political dispute that divided a small town in Japan named Fudai. Uh, Fudai was a town of about 3,000 people, and the controversy centered around Mayor Kotaku Wamura, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, uh, who insisted upon building a, a, a floodgate uh, to protect the town from tsunamis. Uh, Mayor Wamura had grown up seeing tsunamis attack uh, uh, the, the Japanese coast, and he was worried about his city and wanted to build a floodgate to protect it. Now, that he wanted a floodgate was not so much the controversy. A lot of cities and towns were building these floodgates to try to protect uh, the coastline from the possibility of tsunamis. Uh, but what was a controversy was how big Wamura wanted to make this floodgate. Um, around th that city, there was a town named Taro uh, that had a gate that was 33 feet high, and that was supposed to be the gate to end all gates, but Wamura insisted on building a 51-foot floodgate to protect his city. And there was a lot of uh, battle, a lot of controversy, a lot of people argued that's too much, we don't need it, it's too expensive. Uh, but by an act of political force, uh, Mayor Wamura got this through. It ended up being a 12-year building project that concluded in the mid-1980s. It ended up costing $20 million to protect this 3,000-person town, $20 million in the 70s and 80s to protect 3,000 people. Um, when Wamura died about 13 years later in, 20, or in 1997, uh, this floodgate was widely considered to be an absolute waste. He died with a lot of shame uh, in his society over this project, even though to the end he thought it was still necessary. He stuck to his guns. Fourteen years, though, after he died, Wamura was vindicated. On March 11, 2011, you may remember that a 9.0 earthquake hit 80 miles off the coast of northern Japan, and that strike of an earthquake sent off a force in the underwater currents that led to a great tsunami that hit the side of uh, the, the, the country. Um, I, I watched a National Geographic video. Um, apparently, parts of this water was moving five miles per second. It was running with that much force, five miles every second. And when it hit the coast, it was absolutely devastating in Japan. Um, about 20,000 people died with another 2,500 people whose bodies are still missing to this day, but not Fudai. Fudai was virtually left untouched. They had some water damage because even at 51 feet, the, the, the force of the waters was still enough to get some of the town wet, but no one died. There were no casualties in that town, and that was a stark contrast to the rest of the town. Even Taro, the town that had the 33-foot uh, height wall, had 140 residents killed in that city with 41 um, who still remain missing. 
So again, Wamura, even though during his own lifetime and even all the way to the point of his death, he was widely considered to be a failure. It was a sort of a proverbial example that was always set there of, of an eyesore, of, of waste, of unneeded resources to build this kind of a thing. But in the end, he was vindicated. In the end, he saved the lives of all the people who lived in that town beyond not only his tenure as mayor, but his lifetime. Now, the tricky thing about situations like this is that in Fudai and everywhere else in Japan, everyone knew that something needed to be done. Everyone knew that some kind of floodgate had to be built to protect the people. The question is just, how high do you have to build this? How much do you need to sink into the spending on, on to prepare this kind of a thing? What really needs to happen in order for lives to be saved? Well, Jesus here is dealing with a similar kind of question. Jesus has come claiming that he has life-saving knowledge through faith in him. And yet, there are disputes to this. There are challenges to this. Now, everyone knew in his day that something needed to be done. Everyone knew that someday the Messiah would come, the son of David would come. But there was a dispute. Who would this be? What would he look like? How would he know that he was there if and when he arrived? Fast forward to today. Today, maybe you are skeptical about Jesus. How can you really know that this man who lived 2,000 years ago, whose face you've never seen, how can you know that he really is the Messiah, the son of David, the one who to this day offers salvation? Well, what Jesus is saying is the day will be coming when the wrath of God in judgment will come upon the earth. On that day, just like the day when the tsunami came, it will be too late what do we need to know now? How do we have surety in the midst of our skepticism about whether or not Jesus truly is the one that he claimed to be? Well, what Jesus is pointing here is our big idea that Jesus was vindicated by his resurrection. Ultimately, Jesus was vindicated by his resurrection. If you want proof, Jesus says, look to the great sign when Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. In the passage we're looking at this morning, Jesus speaks about the signs, the signs that confirm who he is. So first of all, he talks about a sign to see, a sign to see. Second, a sign to believe, a sign to believe. And then third, a sign to condemn, a sign to condemn. We'll start off with a sign to see, and um, this actually isn't something Jesus says, it's what the Pharisees and scribes say. In verse 38, we read, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. Now, the word then shows some kind of connection to what's come before, but it's not clear how much time has passed, maybe a little, maybe a little bit more than a little. Uh, but clearly, Matthew wants us to remember what has just happened. If you remember the previous passages, Jesus cast out a demon from a demon-oppressed man who had been blind and mute. And when the Pharisees saw this, uh, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Even though the people were asking, can this be the son of David? The Pharisees were saying, no, he's operating on the basis of Satan's power, not his own. Well, when Jesus heard this, he confronted and condemned the Pharisees. He was saying, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit whose power was used in casting out these demons. Satan wouldn't cast out Satan. This is the work of the kingdom of God which has come into your midst. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit and this sin will not be forgiven in this life or the next. Well, apparently, after Jesus has said this, the Pharisees have gone out and ganged up on him, come back with some scribes, and together the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of that day in that area, 
came back to demand a sign from Jesus. They want proof to authenticate, to vindicate the claims that He is making by the works that He's doing. And so they say to Jesus, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, on the one hand, this maybe sounds somewhat reasonable. One commentator, Nolan, says that on the surface, it actually might even sound like a major concession. All right, we're, we're getting somewhere. They're asking for proof. They're interested. They're curious. Show us a sign if you have one. They're wanting to see if Jesus can really pony up and, and offer them to authenticate his claims to authority. That's what they're asking for. But Jesus refuses to do this because he sees three problems with what they are asking, at least three problems. The first of all is that they are ignoring the fact that Jesus has already performed a number of great signs, miraculous signs. When John the Baptist the mess sent messengers back in Matthew chapter 11 asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? Jesus pointed to all kinds of signs that he had performed. Not only had he cast out demons, but he had healed. He had given sight to the blind. He had even raised someone from the dead. Jesus had already performed signs to demonstrate, to vindicate that he was who he said he was. The second problem, though, was that when Jesus did these signs, the Pharisees did not interpret these signs uh, charitably, shall we say. When the Pharisees saw Jesus casting out demons, they attributed that work to the power of demons. If Jesus performs one more sign, it's not going to be saying, oh, we see it now. They're going to twist it just as they have before. But the third thing is a little bit more subtle. In the way that they ask this, the way this is phrased um, in the original, is there's an emphasis on the seeing aspect. Literally, they're saying, we wish a sign to see. Not we wish to see a sign, we wish a sign to see. Now, it more or less means the same thing, but there's an emphasis in the way this is phrased on the seeing nature of the kind of sign that they want to see. As, as Lenski, a commentator, writes, as they're wanting to see something so dazzling that it will require no faith at all. They don't want to walk by faith. They want to walk by sight. Prove it, Jesus. Show us a sign that we can see and then believe. When Jesus rejects this, in verse 39, he turns to them and he answers them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. This word adulterous, before we go on with the rest of Jesus' explanation, this word adulterous is from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament terms, God had taken Israel to be his people. But not only his people, the language is that God had taken Israel to be his bride. So whenever they forsook their covenant with the Lord, with Yahweh, and began to worship other gods, the Old Testament prophets, and we read this throughout the Old Testament, called that Israel's spiritual adultery. They were unfaithful to their covenant husband, their covenant Lord, Yahweh. Now, what's interesting about this is this adultery, this spiritual adultery got so bad that God eventually sent the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires to annihilate the Israelites, and especially to carry whoever survived into captivity. When Israel came back from their captivity, came back from their exile, um, as Don Carson points out, their idolatry had largely ceased. They really didn't struggle with idolatry after that in a, in a sense of having idols and worshiping pagan gods. But Jesus is still insisting that they are yet adulterous in their hearts. Now, this is important. The idea of spiritual adultery is they're stopping worshiping Yahweh and worshiping false gods. And what the Pharisees are ostensibly doing is they're saying, Jesus, prove that you have this authority that you say that you have. Prove that you are not an idolatrous 
person who is leading us away from the worship of Yahweh. And what Jesus responds and says, I am not the one who is leading you away from the Lord, from worshiping the true God. You are the ones who by your hardness of heart, your refusal to believe what I am doing in your midst, your blasphemy against your Holy Spirit, your opposition to the kingdom of God in your midst, you are the ones who are in adulterous rebellion against God. When it comes down to it, Jesus is refusing to confirm His claim, or not, only, not simply refusing to confirm His claims, He's saying, I already have confirmed my claims. First, furthermore, I am not going to confirm the claims that I am making on your terms by sight because you won't believe me anyway, because you are an evil and adulterous generation. Now, the problem is not that the Pharisees want proof. The problem is not that they are intellectually rigorous and they are skeptical and, and want some kind of confirmation that they can believe what Jesus is asking them to believe. The problem is rather that they are asking for an unreasonable goal where there's simply no way for Jesus to sufficiently address all of their doubts and concerns. I think a good illustration of this um, is from William Shakespeare's play, Othello. I had to read this in high school. Maybe you did too. Uh, Othello is a great tragedy. It's one of the darkest tragedies in all of the plays that Shakespeare wrote. Othello was a man who was deeply in love with his wife, Desdemona. But Othello has an advisor, Iago. Um, if you ever watched Aladdin, that evil bird is named after the Iago in Othello. Uh, Iago is this evil figure who is constantly whispering into the ear of Othello, pointing to things that Desdemona, who is absolutely faithful to her husband, pointing to things he's doing and twisting them, trying to get Othello to see them in a, in a dark light until Othello becomes more and more enraged in jealousy for his wife, thinking that she is being unfaithful to him, and that Othello is trying to enforce his faithfulness to her until eventually he begets so angry at his wife that he kills her in murderous range. Now, before he kills her, she's protesting. She's saying, I've done nothing wrong. I've been totally faithful to you. But at that point, his mind is so poisoned that there is nothing she can say to prove her faithfulness to him until it's too late. And after Othello murders Desdemona, Iago reveals the whole plot. He wants Othello to suffer. He hates Othello. He's trying to bring him down and Othello is so overwhelmed by what he has done that he takes his own life because he realizes that he is the one who has committed the crime. He is the one who has been unfaithful to his wife and not the other way around. Well, there's a similar kind of tragedy here. The Pharisees really think that they are defending the faithfulness of Israel to Yahweh. But their minds are so poisoned in this that they refuse to believe that Jesus is the one whom God sent in order to restore Israel to faithful love to God. They are the ones who are unfaithful, not Jesus. And because their minds are so twisted, they are seeing their murderous wrath against Jesus as a proof of their faithfulness when the reality is totally opposite. They are evil and adulterous. Jesus has offered abundant proof that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of David, but the Pharisees have rejected Him. But Jesus, if you heard, at the very end of verse 39, says that He's not going to leave them entirely without a sign. He is, in fact, going to give them a sign. But it will not be the kind of sign that they ask for. He says He will give them the sign of the prophet Jonah, and this will be His greatest sign, and yet even this will be rejected because of their hardness of heart. So this brings us to our second section, 
a sign to believe. The Pharisees ask for a sign to see. Jesus is going to give them a sign to believe. Again, at the end of verse 39, Jesus has said, no sign will be given to it, that's an evil and adulterous generation, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, you probably know the story of Jonah. It's one of the more famous stories. Children hear this story a lot. Uh, Jonah was a prophet who was called to preach a message to the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, telling them that their wickedness had arisen to God and that God was going to overturn the city, to destroy the city if they did not repent. Well, Jonah wanted nothing to do with this call. He did not want to go to Assyria, and so he tried to flee from it. He got on a boat headed the other direction. God found him. God caught up with him. God sent a storm threatening the safety of every man on the boat. Until finally Jonah realizes there's no escaping the call of God. And so he tells the men, throw me overboard. Well, they're terrified about this, but as soon as they throw him overboard, the storm stops and they witness as a great fish emerges from out of nowhere and swallows Jonah whole. Now, the sailors don't know what had happened to Jonah, but God keeps Jonah alive in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights, the text of Jonah tells us. And then When those three days and three nights are over, when Jonah repents, God sends the great fish to spit Jonah up on the beach, and then Jonah goes about his work, and he goes to the city of Nineveh and goes about his mission so the Ninevites repent. We'll talk about that more in a moment, Uh, but for now, let's look at what Jesus says in verse 40. He says that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, what Jesus is talking about is very clear. He's talking about his death and burial before his resurrection. Jesus was died, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. But what Jesus says here is very clear at one level. Jesus is clearly saying that the sign he is going to give is the sign of being raised from the dead, and we'll talk more about what that means in a moment. That's the most important part of this here. But probably what's most confusing about this passage is the phrase that Jesus is using about the timeline. What does it mean that Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Now, not everyone would agree with what I'm about to present, so if you have more questions or if you have other ideas, I'd be happy to talk with you. I've been talking about someone this week. It's been a good, fruitful conversation. Uh, this is a little bit disputed, but I'm going to give you the, the way I would interpret that this uh, here, and, and I hope that it maybe clarifies and simplifies for you what the timing idea is here. Uh, see, when we think of three days and three nights, we think of three full 24-hour periods. So three times 24 is 72. If Jesus was then buried at the end of the day Friday, well, that would mean that three days and three nights later would actually put him on rising from the dead Monday afternoon. But of course, today's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. We gather today in recognition, not just on Easter, but week by week in remembrance of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And so you say, okay, well, if he's buried at the end of the day, Friday, and he raises, rises from the dead on Sunday morning, that's 36 hours. That's hardly three days and three nights. Well, I think there are two principles to help us understand what Jesus is doing here. The first is the idea of inclusive counting. When we count a day, we count a day at the end of the completion of the day. But the ancients, ancient Jews especially, begin their, or count days at the beginning of a day. So for us, the first day is day zero, which if you think about it, that actually doesn't make sense. Why is day one also day zero? 
Maybe we're the ones who have this a little bit confused so that at the end of 24 hours when you're on your second day, well, that's actually one day, but it's the second day and boy, now I'm getting confused here with the way that we count. What the ancients would do is say, you, you moderns are, are weird. Think about it. If it's day one, that's the first day, okay? So Friday is day one. It's the first day. Saturday is the second day. Sunday is day three. Don't overcomplicate this. We do inclusive counting here in the first century AD. And, and that's what they would have done. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, after three days, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Okay, well, that makes sense. Except that Jesus here is even a little bit more specific than that. He says three days and three nights. What are we supposed to make about this? Well, again, this doesn't comport with how we count, but what's important to understand is that for the ancients, a day started actually the night before. You see a very clear biblical example of this in Luke 23, verse 54. After Jesus was crucified, there was a scramble to get him buried before nightfall. Because as we read in, in Luke 23, verse 54, Sabbath was beginning. Now, Sabbath was Saturday, the seventh day of the week, and it was Friday when they were trying to scramble to Jesus before the sun fully set. Why? Because the Sabbath day started Friday night. The Saturday Sabbath started Friday night. It started at sunfall at about 6 p.m. on Friday evening. That was their day. The day counted the night before it. Now, again, this is a little weird because we don't count this way. Our days start at midnight, and that seems to make sense until you think about it. If you get up at 2 in the morning, what do you say? It's still the middle of the night. Okay, one night. Uh, then you have your day, so one night, one day, and then it gets late in the night and the sun sets again. And so every calendar day, what happens? We actually have two nights and one day. So as logical as we think our counting is, any way you slice it, they're just going to be hard to sort of square exactly what we're happening here. What Jesus was saying is that first day, Friday, and, and Jesus did have to be buried. That's why all of the Gospels portray a scramble to have him buried before the sun sets. He had to be buried still on Friday before it actually turned to Saturday in their mind, Sabbath. That uh, says in Luke 23, verse 54, that Sabbath was beginning in the sense that we would say, oh, we've got to get to our seats. The, the, the game's starting. The game is beginning. Well, that means that the band is on the field. That means that the tunnel walk is happening. That doesn't mean that kickoff has happened yet. That means we're scrambling to get to our seats because the game is beginning but hasn't yet begun. They had to bury Jesus on the same day because it would have been profane to bury him once the Sabbath had actually started. So Friday, that first day, not only counted as a day, but it included by inclusive counting the whole day, which means that Thursday night before. That's night one, day one. Then Saturday, that's day two, Saturday night, night two, or excuse me, yeah, Friday, Friday night, excuse me, to Saturday day. That's uh, night two, day two. Saturday night to Sunday morning, that is night three, day three. And again, this is not the most important thing here. If you have more questions about that, please come ask me. But I do think it's one of the confusing, and hopefully some of that maybe has made you rethink the way you count days. But what Jesus is doing here, let's get to the important stuff now, is he is focusing on the sign of his resurrection. The resurrection will be Jesus' greatest sign, and the significance of this in the rest of the New Testament is doing exactly what Jesus says it will do. Namely, it is vindicating that Jesus is who he says he is. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, 
says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So he's pointing back to all the miracles Jesus did. And Peter is saying, you know that God attested to his reality. But then in verse 24, he talks about the greatest sign that Jesus did. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was raised from the dead in order to prove, in order to have a sign attested to him by God, that God was vindicating him. And in fact, this is the very language we have in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Uh, Paul gives an early creed of the church. He says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So what does that vindication of the Spirit mean? Well, it could refer to many works, but ultimately it refers to his resurrection. Jesus was vindicated, especially at his resurrection, and this is clear in Romans 1 verse 4 where Paul writes that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. This is one of the texts that talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in raising Jesus from the dead. And it says that as the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. Now, was Jesus the Son of God before He was raised from the dead? Absolutely He was. But that reality was veiled. It was hard to see. But when he was raised from the dead, he was vindicated. He was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection. Jesus was vindicated by his resurrection. But if so, if Jesus truly was vindicated, why didn't people believe? Why didn't these scribes and Pharisees who asked for him a sign to see, why didn't they believe? Well, you know, the Bible is full of stories of people who God speaks to in so many ways and so many times, and yet step by step by step they harden themselves and refuse to repent no matter what. The classic case, of of course, is the case of Pharaoh um, when Israel was in captivity in Egypt. God sent Moses to speak to Pharaoh, and he said, Let my people go. Thus saith the Lord God, let my people go. But Pharaoh refuses every step of the way to let God's people go. Now, for a while, it makes sense about why there's some justification for not necessarily believing. Some strange man comes into his presence and says, let the Israelites go. Uh, It's understandable that Pharaoh wouldn't be eager to do this. But Moses is able to perform signs, especially by Aaron. Aaron throws his staff down. It turns into a snake. But then Pharaoh's magicians are able to do the same thing. They throw their staffs down, and those staffs become snakes. Well, as it happens, Aaron's staff goes and devours those snakes, showing the superiority of the God of Aaron and Moses over the superiority of the gods of Egypt. Well, but Pharaoh still doesn't relent, doesn't repent, doesn't release the people, so plagues come, and the water is turned to blood, but the magicians can do the same thing. We're not told whether they really can do this by some demonic power, or whether they fake it, maybe by some red powder that looks like blood or something like that. We don't know. Uh, But Pharaoh says, well, my magicians can do the same thing. I will not let your people go. But then it goes on for a while, and Pharaoh's magicians are no longer able to replicate the plagues that the Egyptian, or that the Israelites' God is able to do. And they say to Pharaoh, it's by the finger of God that they do this. At that point, there's a shift. It no longer becomes about proof. It becomes about pride. We confessed about pride today. 
That was part of our confession of sin. It's still a question today. Are we genuinely seeking proof about Jesus? Or are we digging our heels in to defend our pride? That's a real question that Jesus is asking these scribes and Pharisees, and they are adamantly refusing, and they will refuse even after Jesus is raised from the dead. The resurrection should command their faith. It does exactly what they ask for, but it won't because they both reject the signs that Jesus has done and they, and they reject his resurrection, which means that the resurrection will be for them not a sign that they believe and are saved by it, but rather it will be a sign to condemn them. And this comes to our third point, a sign to condemn in verses 41 through 42. We read, The men of Nineveh, Jesus says, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, in both of these examples, Jesus is pointing to the examples of Gentiles, far-off Gentiles, uh, Assyrians living in Nineveh, the Queen of Sheba living in the south, far-off Gentiles who believe even though they had less information than Israel did at the time. Far-off Gentiles who believe. And now what Jesus is saying is that even though the Ninevites believed Jonah, even though the Queen of Sheba believed Solomon, now Jesus is preaching to God's own people, the Israelites, who have more information, more knowledge, greater signs performed in front of them, and they still don't believe. And it's also interesting to see the people that Jesus is talking about. He's saying there's someone greater than Jonah, a prophet. There's someone greater than Solomon, a king, also a wise man, something greater than the wisdom of Solomon. Well, don't forget at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, Jesus had also said about himself in verse 6, Matthew 12 verse 6, that something greater than the temple is here. So something greater than Solomon's wisdom and Solomon's kingship, something greater than Jonah's prophetic office, something greater than the temple and all of the priests who are ministering in this temple. As R.T. France writes in his commentary, if there's something more or greater than all of these key authorities, priests, prophets, kings, wise men, and he's now present in one person, well, then Jesus' as questioners have a thought-provoking basis on which to consider the question of his authority. Jesus has proved far more to them than they have asked for, and yet they still do not believe. And Jesus says, if you do not believe, understand those who had less than you will rise up on the last day of judgment, and they will condemn you because you didn't lay hold of the things that you were given. Well, like Mayor Womura of Fudai, Jesus is warning that a tsunami is coming, not a tsunami of ocean waters, but a tsunami of the wrath of God. Those who believe in Jesus, trusting Him to be our refuge, will survive that judgment. Jesus will be the far greater wall that will block the floods of God's wrath coming against those who do not believe. He will be a refuge in time of trouble. A mighty refuge is our God, we sing from Psalm 46. You can picture Jesus standing against the tides of God's wrath to protect His people. Those who refuse to believe, though, will perish. And so that leads us into a question of asking, what about us? Is this just an interaction for the first century that Jesus had with the scribe of Pharisees? 
No, we're supposed to gain something from this. The application that we should take from this is that we must seek Christ's signs by faith, not by sight. There may be a desire in your heart. I I wish you could just prove this to me. I I wish you could just pile up decisive smoking gun proofs that Jesus was a real man who was truly God, who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. But by doing so, if I were even able to do this, which I'm not, I would actually distract you from the way in which God says salvation comes to His people. God says that salvation comes by hearing the Word of God, by faith, by hearing the Word of God as the Holy Spirit works in us to give us the kind of faith that looks to this message of the gospel of Jesus and lays hold of it. It says, that's for me. That's true, and it is for me and for my salvation. You see, a healthy sense of skepticism in religious and spiritual matters is good and right to a large degree. The Bible commands us to test the spirits. We should not blindly believe everyone who claims to have some word from the Lord. But the problem is not whether we should test, but how we should test. The tests that God gives us in the Bible are not the kinds of tests that are demanded here by the scribes and the Pharisees, and it's not the kind of tests that we want to see. I remember being a very young child praying one night late at night saying, God, I I want you to prove yourself to me. And I was angry when he didn't prove himself to me, but in his kindness, I realized God doesn't want to miraculously manifest himself to me by sight. He wanted me to learn through his scriptures and through growing up in the church where I always heard God preached, Christ preached. He wanted me to learn faith so that I would know Christ by that and not by sight. The tests that God gives us in the Bible then are the kinds of tests that we need to pay heed to. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes wanted a sign to see. They wanted something external, and that becomes a persistent problem. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, we read that the Jews demand a sign, but that's not the only kind of skepticism. The Greeks seek wisdom, and the cross of Jesus Christ uh, appeals to none of them on those bases. But God says, rather, that we should test him according to his word. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 20 through 21, Paul writes, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Okay, then, Paul, what is good? Well, the Bible gives us a number of tests that we should apply to test anything. And Jesus passed all of them. The main test came in the prophecy of the great prophet to come. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 22, It says, this is how you know that a prophet is a true prophet. You must test this prophet to see whether the word that this prophet actually speaks in the name of the Lord comes to pass. If the word does come to pass, then you know you have a true prophet. If the word does not come to pass, you know you have a false prophet. Well, Jesus' word did come to pass. He was buried and he was resurrected. But what about today? How do we test teachers today? Well, in 1 John verse, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we have a test that John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. But by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So one thing you have to ask is, does a prophet, a teacher, a preacher, a pastor, a leader teach that Jesus came in the flesh? Well, then in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, 
Paul writes, therefore, I want you to understand, here's another test, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So uh, does a leader, does a prophet, a preacher, a pastor teach that Jesus is Lord or not? The final test is in Acts 17, verse 11, where we read that as Jesus was preached in the city of Berea, we read, now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they drove Paul out. These Jews rather received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The question we have to ask is, does a prophet, a teacher, a leader bring you under the authority of scripture or not? Well, this morning, I want to make it clear. I bring you no new word from the Lord. There is nothing impressive to see in me. I have no secret knowledge. I have only what is laid down in the Scriptures. I offer you no new teaching. I only come to affirm that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and that He is indeed Lord. I have no special insight, only what we are led to believe by faith as it is contained in the Scriptures. I have no authority in myself. I am only a herald, a minister, a steward of the mysteries of Christ, commissioned to proclaim this simple gospel that's laid down most clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, that builds exactly off of what Jesus said he would do in this passage, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And by that resurrection, Jesus Christ was vindicated as God's Son, as the ultimate Son of David, as Lord and Christ. The Scriptures, therefore, declare to us signs that verify vindicate and validate Jesus. The question is, what will you do with him? Will you believe in him as he is held out to you in the gospel, or will you maintain a a skepticism that is no longer about proof? The proof is given to us in the pages of Scripture, but is rather about your pride. Oh, put your pride to death. Confess your sins to him. Believe upon him as he's offered to you in the gospel for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed give us Jesus Christ and him crucified. That you would give to us Christ by faith through your word and through the sacraments which we prepare to receive in just a moment. We pray that as we have Christ, you would fill us with the fullness of your Holy Spirit so that we might know him, love him, desire him, worship him, and so that in him all of this would be to your glory. That you, Father, would be glorified in your glorified Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.